You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today, I've got Travis Thornton. Now, Travis is an all-around outdoorsman. He's from Louisiana, and he's kind of had a good mix of experience when it comes to chasing after different types of animals. Now, he, he grew up in Louisiana doing the whole deer hunting with hounds thing. And I know that's kind of a hot topic, highly debated uh, discussion point in the hunting world, but I'm excited to talk to him and get his thoughts on it because I haven't had that conversation with someone who has actually done it. I mean, he grew up in that environment, like that hunting culture. And so to hear from him what it's all about, you know, how, how it's part of who he is and how it helped him, uh, help shape him as the hunter that he is today. And now he's transitioned to being all about elk hunting. I mean, he is obsessed. It's what he thinks about all the time and he still does the other stuff, but we're going to talk about elk hunting, what that looks like out West. And I find a lot of people are that way. You know, they may have grown up in the Midwest or the South or, you know, the Southeast chasing after whitetails or some other type of big game animal. But when you get to Colorado or Wyoming or Utah, Montana, Idaho, Arizona, into the mountains chasing after elk and mule deer, there's just something about it. And I find that a lot of outdoorsmen are very much like um, they're mountain people, right? You, you've got the mountain people that absolutely love going to the mountains. They love being in the wilderness out away from everybody. And then you've got beach people. And I feel like those are the two main categories of travelers. I'm a mountain guy for sure. Like put me in the mountains. I'm happy as can be. And there's just something different. Now hunting the Midwest is beautiful, right? Hunting the Northwoods of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, it's gorgeous. New York. Hunting down south, I mean, I'm sure there's beautiful places. All I think about is heat, and so it's not that appealing to me. But it's just a different level when you go out to the mountains. And so we're going to talk to Travis about all of this. I'm really excited about this episode. Let's jump in right now. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. 
it's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. At this point in the year, we've all got a pretty good idea of where we're going to be hunting this fall. But now what? If you're anything like me, scouting just got moved to the top of your priority list. Luckily, Vortex has a wide variety of spotting scopes, tripods, and binoculars to get the job done right. I'm going to be spending the rest of my summer behind my Fury 5000 binoculars or getting an up-close look with my Razor HD spotting scope. So if you want to spend the rest of your summer setting yourself up for success this fall, whether that's in the woods of Missouri or the mountains of Colorado, check out what's new from Vortex at vortexoptics.com and head to your favorite Vortex dealer to make sure you're ready for everything fall can throw at you. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And today on the show with me is Travis Thornton, and he is from Louisiana, but this guy kind of does a little bit of everything when it comes to the outdoors, hunting, fishing, and I'm pretty excited to talk to him. I don't have a ton of guests on, honestly, from Louisiana, so that's going to be a treat. But Travis, thanks for hopping on the show, man. I appreciate it, man. I, I really look forward to it. Yeah, it it should be a great show because, like me, it's been fairly recently that you got into elk hunting, and so we're going to talk about a lot of that as well, like what it looked like growing up in a totally different part of the country and then starting to explore out West. Um, but before we do all that, why don't you share with the listeners a little bit about your hunting history, kind of what got you started, uh, maybe what you do now and what you're most passionate about. So I started whitetail hunting when I was probably seven or eight. Um, my dad, we actually started in the Homochino National Forest running uh, beagles, um, you know, down in the south. It's kind of like rabbit hunting and fox hunting. You can, you're, it's legal to run the, run hounds to, to chase deer out of the woods. And, and uh, that's kind of what I grew up doing. So we, I actually killed my first deer. It was a five point. I shot him in 2000. I was eight years old with a 20 gauge. Um, uh, real cool moment. My dad wouldn't, wasn't too far from me. And then from there, we, we hunted there for a little while. And as I went through high school, it kind of faded a little bit. And then we got a lease in, in West Texas, uh, around Girard, Texas. And we hunted there for years, um, all through the end of high school, beginning of college. Of course, I went to college in Missouri, just, just north of you. Um, and I, I ended up meeting this old man. I ended up getting, access to a thousand acres up there so that's where we hunt at now uh, we've been hunting there since 2012 uh in the process of that we've met some locals in missouri they brought us uh on our first elk well brought my dad on the first elk hunt when he came back he called me he's like you gotta go <laughs> so of course i went we chased we chased them all week long i hated every second of it because we wouldn't hear any bugles we uh we walking 20 miles a day and you know i wouldn't just cut out for that being from south louisiana and uh we ended up getting on a bull the last day i shot him with my boat at 60 yards uh he ran down the yards and crashed and from then i was hooked on that and through all of that i was slowly building up my addiction for whitetail and i mean if you ask my fiance now she would tell me that's the only thing i think about and i mean i 
she's not lying majority of the time, but we, uh, I, I enjoy being in the woods. I enjoy chasing whitetail. I enjoy chasing elk. Um, I actually killed my first deer in Louisiana two years ago. Uh, and I'm about to be 31. So that's an interesting fact on me is we just don't hunt. I don't, I don't hunt in Louisiana much. Um, but I do like going offshore, catching red snapper fishing. Uh, I grew up in Ven- around Venice, like going to Venice, Louisiana, fishing inshore for red, uh, bull reds, speckle trout, white trout, and stuff like that. Uh, just being outdoors is kind of my pride and joy. Yeah, that's, I mean, I feel like once you get that itch or if you grow up in it, uh, there's, there are certain activities that you obviously enjoy more that you're the most passionate about, but anytime you can be outdoors, like for me, I'm not huge into bass fishing necessarily, but in between hunting season, like turkey season and dove season, or when, when there's a lull, I'll go and catch bass just because I enjoy being outside. I enjoy having that interaction with nature. Um, one thing I want to hear a little bit more about is the, the deer hunting behind beagles because I've seen the videos of people hunting deer with hounds and, you know, people who don't have access to that in their home state, um, I, I feel like there's a bad rap put on it uh, from people who have never done it. And it's something that's always intrigued me. I've always wanted to be there in person for a hunt like that to see what it's all about. Um, so what was that like? I mean, obviously it's a totally different ball game than when you're going out west elk hunting. But as far as as far as like the setup, like how do you go about setting up for a hunt like that? Are you sending the dogs and then going out and getting front? Is there a handler that's walking with the dogs while other people are posted? Uh, how does how does a deer hunt with dogs work? So normally how we've done it, and I, and I, I touch on the bad rap thing. I can see where it's bad rap because, you know, these dogs trespass on the people's property, mess up their hunt and stuff like that. And I can see where it's a it's a terrible rap for it, but I I, I loved it. I absolutely loved listening to the dogs run. I, I loved everything about it. And the way the way we set up is as you would we would get our lot, and we usually you know go into a, a thicket, thick brush area, and we would we would get in the forest around it. Um, and people would set up. We would set up you know 150 200 yards all the way around this clear cut uh, that that's inside the home of the National Forest and. Um, it, it was either my dad or, or, uh, we had another guy that would let the dog like get on the radio. Everybody set. We always had that one that went to the back. Once they got set, they would let him know and he would let the dogs out and he would walk through the middle with them, you know, calling and yipping at them, just trying to get them to, to jump something up. And then once they jumped up, you know, they would run out to wherever somebody was posted up at. And if we got past them, we always knew the roads to go to that eventually the dogs would come to and they push the deer to. So you always got that kind of chaser that would get in a truck and run all around the country trying to find, find everybody. Okay. And find the dogs. But the new, the new, the new laws now make it a lot tougher to run with them. Um, you got to have a number on your truck. You got to have a number on the hounds. All your hounds got to be numbered, uh, GPS tracking system on them, everything. So it's, it's just, it's a dying, a dying, side of the side of the sport side of hunting because it's just such a pain now to to deal with it uh, and that's kind of about the time we started getting out is when all these rules and laws started coming into it 
Yeah, that's, I mean, it's definitely intriguing to me because I love watching dogs work. And, you know, I've always, I've seen dogs work for pheasants and ducks and rabbits and squirrel and, and even like this past year, mountain lion. And it's just cool to see the interaction, like when, when guys use dogs as a tool to assist in a hunt. And I can imagine it's the same thing with deer. It's just like, that there's probably people who are passionate just about running the dogs. It doesn't even matter if they shoot a deer, you know, they might just be in it to handle dogs and to watch their dogs work while the other guys are out there posted up, ready to shoot. Um, and so that's definitely something I'm curious about. And I still would like to be a part of that in person. I know there's several States in the South and in the East that, that allow for it. But, um, as far as it being a dying sport, it's unfortunate, but there's so many regulations that are popping up around a lot of things that people have been accustomed to for many, many years. Even the trail camera debate all over the country, there are states that are, are tightening restrictions on trail cameras or outlawing them altogether as far as hunting purposes go. And I think we're going to see little attacks like that here and there on every type of hunting sport, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, as time goes on, it's, it's everything's going to change. It's eventually going to, I mean, I hate to say it, eventually it's probably going to get tough, tougher for us to, to go out and enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the trail camera stuff that they got going on right now is just ridiculous. It's, and I, I've talked about it with several of my buddies and, you know, they're trying to go to where, what is it? The Pope and Young can't, or the Boone and Crockett that you can't score if you're, use trail cameras and geez i didn't i don't remember exactly what it was i didn't know that i didn't or i haven't heard about that yet that that seems wild to me but you know if if you do i mean i could see it in a sense if say a state like arizona that may have outlawed trail cameras altogether if you do use a trail camera and then go and harvest an animal I guess that would technically be a form of poaching since you're you're using illegal methods to harvest an animal. And so I, yeah. I guess I could see then how Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young wouldn't honor that or wouldn't allow that to be recorded like in the record books if it was a poached animal. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are vocal on both sides um, I feel like as people get more educated about hunting, that's the number one thing we can do as hunters is just educate people about the sport. I talk to people all the time who are opposed to hunting or maybe indifferent. And once they hear what it's all about, like why, why I'm passionate about it or what hunters do as far as conservation and contributing to habitat improvements and, and population studies and trying to trying to reintroduce species to their native range all across the country, people start to really become more comfortable with it and go, Oh, okay. Like I thought you guys were out to the, out there just mowing down everything that moves. And that's kind of a misconception with a lot of people who just don't have experience with hunters. So um, I've got nothing against, I, I have absolutely nothing against people who run, run dogs for deer. Um, I, I feel like as long as you can harvest them ethically and it's legal, why not, why not do it? And that's why I definitely want to go see it. 
before forming a final opinion about it. I want to experience it for myself. Um, so you had mentioned different types of fishing, you know, red fishing. That is very intriguing to me. I see videos on that all the time. That's something I still have yet to do, but it seems like the type of fishing sport that once you get into it, like you're kind of hooked. Is that true? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's an all in thing and it's, it's not the cheapest thing. So, uh, we, I, I grew up mainly inshore, which was bull reds, speckled trout. Uh, and that's more style of like you would say, like bass fishing or, you know, thinking freshwater, thinking something you're more familiar with. That's kind of more on the lines of, of what you're doing there. Um, if you look at the videos, you see people fly fishing for reds. You, you, you see people using, you know, soft baits, soft plastics, and then you got your live shrimp and your frozen shrimp that you use. And we actually go, uh, we used to go out all the time when my, my grandpa was alive, we would go down to Venice and we would fish. We had certain areas we'd go, go out, you'd limit out within two or three hours and you're back to the, back to the launch hanging out. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very fun, you know, you, you hook a bull red and I wish my video was working. I got one mounted above my, my desk in my office. And, uh, I called it when I was nine years old. It took me around an hour and 15 minutes to really in. Holy cow. Um, yeah, they, they fight, you wear them out, you wear them down. It's just like you see these guys that fish blue marlin, fish, you know, swordfish, stuff like that. You just wear them down. Eventually, they'll, you'll be able to reel them in. Uh, now we've kind of went, my, my dad recently bought a offshore boat. So now we've kind of turned to turn the tables to offshore fishing. Uh, we go about, go out of Grand Isle, Louisiana. We go about, um, 35 to 40 miles offshore, hit a few rigs, fishing about 200, 250 foot of water and, and, and catching red snapper. Uh, and that's a big addiction. You get out in that blue water. You drop in a line 200 foot and you're fighting that sucker all the way back up. I mean, it's just, it's nothing like it. Um, uh, I love hearing about my, stuff my like dad, that, man. Yeah, my dad's recently kind of figured out how to catch uh, the Maui Maui dolphin, whatever you you want to call them. Uh, he goes out on the grass line and stuff. So he just recently figured out how to catch them. I hadn't been able to go this year, uh, but he's he's done that and then we got a few connections to get out and catch tuna and uh actually been uh caught black fin tuna i've never caught a yellow fin but i did catch a uh roughly 300 400 pound blue marlin um a couple years back jeez that that type of fishing is completely foreign to me you know i've done the i've done the I guess I could say deep sea fishing, you know, like dropping down and over a hundred feet of water. Uh, but we're catching things like mm -hmm. rock bass and lingcod. And, uh, we were going for halibut. One guy caught halibut and this is up in Alaska. But when you're talking several hundred pound fish, that's foreign to me. Like I've never even seen a several hundred pound fish in person. And so to, to be trying to fight one of those things or reel it in. I can only imagine, uh, the rush, but also the exhaustion that you face after that. At that point, it's just like, who's going to tire out first, the fish or me. Yeah. It's, it's, you fight them for a little while, but with the red snapper, once they get up to a certain, you know, depth, 
they it kind of shoots their intestines and stuff out so it kind of starts killing them so they're easy to reel in but the issue once you get to that spot is there's sharks in that area amberjack cobia stuff like that that you got to reel through and hopefully you're not reeling up just ahead because there's times that you know you're you're dropping 250 feet you fight this thing all the way up to the top of the water and all it is is just a head on top of on it because a shark oh uh, bit it or yeah it's 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 like a chess match when you're reeling up, but yeah, it's it's exhausting. You reel, you know, our limit used to be two. They just moved it to a three three fish limit now. So you go out there, you catch three fish. You got two people on the boat, you know. Um, but to catch three, you might have to reel in seven because the other four are just uh are eaten from the sharks. Um, but it's 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 definitely. You got to be in shape. It's just like elk hunting. You got to be in shape to do it. You got to, you know, we brought my uncle out there a couple of times and he just, you thought it was going to pull him over the side of the boat just because he wasn't ready for what he was tackling. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, uh, when, when you get people like me from the Midwest used to <laughs> catching fish that are mostly under five pounds and then going out and experiencing something like that you got to mentally prepare for it. And it, it'd be the same as, you know, somebody who goes out and maybe squirrel hunts and you take them out West for the first time. It's like, Hey, this isn't, this isn't even close to the same thing. It might as well not even be in the same category. Um, you need to be in shape for it. You need to have endurance for it. And you know, it's gonna, it's gonna take everything you got. So that's really cool, man. I mean, it sounds like Louisiana is a land of plenty of bounty for, for the outdoorsmen between the it, freshwater fishing it is, it is go ahead it is between saltwater fishing freshwater fishing you know we got one of the top 10 lakes with toledo bend with bass fishing uh you know sackalai crappie whatever you want to call them we got them around and and most of our lakes um but what what you do know, you know where we were sackalai and that's the same as crappie yeah white perch oh okay pretty much yeah I, it's, it's yeah i hadn't similar. heard that name before. No, i mean it's yeah and actually it's funny i got a uh my best friend lives um in missouri and he he recently came across the name sackalai for crappie and so now every time he calls me he tells me to go sackalai fishing <laughs> that's awesome i people would look at me like what are you talking about what are you smoking if i started calling crappie sackalai that's interesting yeah. though. i that i like learning new things like that also if you would have just said that and not thrown in crappie i would have had no idea i would have had to go and look up what you were talking about <laughs> yeah it's it's i mean it's everybody calls everything different you know so but we got you know the deer hunting I told you, you know, a little while ago that I just recently killed my first deer in Missouri. I shot a doe uh, two years ago. Um, the, the deer population just dropped dramatically over the last 20 years uh, in, in Louisiana. So me growing up, I grew up hunting in the home of the National Forest in Mississippi. Uh, and I've always hunted out of state. So my our neighbor that lives at the end of our road. He's had some little food plot and stuff. And my niece wants to go. And I was like, yeah, we'll go back there, call him and see if he'll let us. And 
he said, yeah, go ahead. So we went back there climbing the stand, and we had three does come out. I tried to get her to shoot one, but she couldn't see out the scope, so I shot one. And that was the first one I've killed in Louisiana. It's just – from then, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try it. So last year, I hunted a few management areas here uh, around around my house. Um, and then my dad just recently purchased some land, uh, and he's, he's building uh, – venue and stuff on it but in the back side of it he's not really going to do much with it's kind of wet so we're going to try to build us a little hunting paradise back there and we know we got deer back there we're going to go in and and smooth it out plant a few a few food plots um of course the law down here is you can use corn but you put corn out that attracts hogs and that's something you, that's that's the biggest fight is trying to hunt and not have hogs in your area so the deer will come in your area because the hogs are just gonna scare the deer off and of course you can hunt the hogs year round but it's it still hurts our deer population and hurts makes it harder for us to hunt for the white for whitetail yeah that'd be that'd be tough to have to deal with all the time i mean it's like you don't want to be shooting constantly and having dead animals all over the place because the deer probably aren't going to like that very much but also, they're competing for the resources, and you know if they're running deer off of food plots or corn piles or whatever, like it seems kind of like a no-win situation once you have a hog infestation like a lot of the southern states do. Yeah, it's I I, I put some mineral out uh, a couple weeks ago and put a camera on it and just let it sit and and see what. You know what was back there on the back side of his property and first five pictures was probably 20 30 hogs and you know once they ate all the all the mineral and stuff and and uh i had a couple does and and a little small buck on camera but for the most part it was mainly just 20 something hogs um and actually a buddy texted me earlier today they shot 17 hogs off his property this morning dang yeah, I I've had very little experience with hogs. I I did one hog hunt in Oklahoma and then two in Texas. Um, but the two in Texas, it really opened my eyes to just how big of a problem it is seeing the habitat destruction, seeing just the sheer amount of them. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of pigs and it seemed like everywhere you turn there was either pigs or sign from them being there. Uh I'm thankful that at this point we don't have a huge problem with it where I hunt in Missouri, but I know that they're creeping their way up and it's only a matter of time before we start having more encounters and seeing, seeing more of them. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a problem down here. They're everywhere. You go down the road, they're on the side of the roads, rooting in the closest creek to the road. And it's, it's, it's a struggle. Um, but they, they have started changing the law, uh, in the area for whitetail and it's it's helped the population with whitetail um you know besides the hog fact people are starting to kind of strategize i see a lot of people i follow a lot of things on social media through throughout the state on um hunters and what they're doing to be successful and a lot of people's putting you know chicken wire and stuff around their food plots and feeders so the hogs can't get into it and it's allowing the deer to come attract the deer and the deer coming in be able to eat safely uh, they also changed bag limits. Um, they went to a, a two buck one doe or two bucks, three deer total limit. And 
our area, Louisiana kind of broke out in areas. Um, I'm, uh, I hunt area four, but you got different laws for different areas. In area four, it's a three deer limit. Other areas, you could kill six. Okay. Um, but a, a lot of the a lot of the laws are starting to shift in favor. I would like to see the laws kind of kind of mock Missouri's with the point regulation, with the you know four on one side type laws. But we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I feel like each county, individual or individually, or unit or zone or however they're broken up in the states should have should have that choice of how they manage because you know if they've got a great aid structure and it's not as big of a deal if people are shooting younger deer um i feel like each each individual area should be able to regulate that on their own uh even colorado i know it's like that out there each each unit that you hunt has its own stuff so some units might be you need to have three points on one side or six inch brow tines or you know, it could be four points on one side or anything's legal as long as it's a spike with over six inch uh, points altogether. You know, it's it's cool because, as you know, one state could be broken up into so many different landscapes and habitats. And one habitat if or one landscape, if you say, hey, it's got to have four on one side, you might not ever get to kill a buck in that area because they just don't grow or there's not there's not that many deer or the age structure just doesn't ever get that much because of predation or not enough habitat or whatever um and so breaking it up like that i feel like i feel like that's a big win for conservation departments and organizations uh to have the say to change to change the rules in each individual area it makes it tough for us as hunters because we have to know each zone, each unit that we hunt in, what the regulations are. But ultimately, I would imagine that they're doing it for the betterment of the herd and the population of whatever species. Yeah, I, I totally agree on that. And and like I said, the the, the law here, you know, it's, it's helped with the population. I've seen over the past five years, I've seen better deer being killed. I've, I've you know, you get on this page and and people, the locals around me, I've seen, you know, a couple 140s, 150s come out. And that's something you wouldn't have seen 10 years ago. Because yeah. 10 years ago, everybody was shooting five, six deer a year and just shooting everything that walked, not worried about age. Of course, now, modern day with the social media, with the TV shows and stuff like that, all the kids that grew up watching that are trying to manage everything. So that's also a plus because all these guys want to kill deer to hang on the wall now um, because it's more of a trophy in some instances, whereas some places, you know, it's, it's more for the meat, but you got your guys that, you know, if they want meat, they'll shoot a couple of does and then wait for that right buck to come in. And I've, I've noticed that too, just, just watching that with all the TV shows coming out and all the social media and stuff and just watching hunters grow into that, trying to make sure that, they have a deer to brag about and put him on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I feel like no matter what you get into hunting for, like go after it and try to try to kind of drown out the noise of everybody else, because it's at the end of the day, it's your hunt. You know, if you're out there and you aren't even enjoying yourself 
because you feel the pressure to shoot a certain type of deer or age class or amount of points or whatever, like it's kind of breaking the spirit of what hunting is all about. At the end of the day, most of us are out there to get meat and a bigger rack is a bonus for sure. Um, if I always, I always get torn because one, I want everybody to be able to hunt and kill what they want as long as it's legal and ethical. Uh, on the other end, I say that if you are sharing a property private, especially like public is, is a whole different ball game, but if you are hunting with other people on private land, it should be a group choice of what gets shot. If everybody's cool with shooting anything, if everyone's like, man, it's brown, it's down, go for it. See how that works out. Hopefully you don't completely destroy the deer population on your property. But if, if say you have 20 people that hunt out there and 18 of them are like, hey, we want to shoot three and a half year old bucks or older, well, the other two should probably jump on board with it. You can, you can take a vote. You can figure it out amongst yourselves and then just stick to it and honor that once you have, once you're on property with other people. Um, and you know, it's the same thing, no matter where you hunt elk camp, deer camp. Uh, if you go duck hunting and people only want to shoot drakes and not shoot hens, uh, certain places have certain preferences and that's where the communication and just working it out with, with your fellow hunters is going to be a world of difference. Um, I want to jump into elk hunting though, because that is, I don't, I don't know why it's quickly becoming my number one passion, like being in the mountains, glassing, uh, hearing elk bugle, just watching a herd from 700 yards, figuring out where they're going, how to get ahead of them. It's, it's totally different. So you had mentioned earlier that your dad had gone out and he's the one who invited you and he's like, dude, you got to come try this. Uh, what was that like? Obviously your first year was tough. You, you may have gone into it, not knowing what to expect, putting on 20 miles a day, but then ending up getting a bull. What, what did the next year look like for you? How did you change your preparation, your gear, all of that stuff? So the, I, really the first year, I guess I, I was kind of prepared physically because I had just come, you know, I, I played college football, uh, in Missouri I played there for five years so it was freshly out of college he had went my last year of college and uh you know he went in they had a bull bugle the bull came down he you know like anybody with any kind of deer or elk or anything in front of him he got the fever he actually ended up blowing his strings off his bow because him and a guy he was with drew back on the elk he didn't have a shot the other guy shot and stuck him, and dad got caught watching him and kind of just like lowered his bow and released his arrow into the ground, like, you know, just from nerves and stuff. So it ended up blowing a string off. Um, and where we hunt at, where we hunt at, it's a 140 mile round trip to the local bow shop. So he had to take a day and do that. Well, he, so he got done with it. He told me about it. He's like, look, we got to go. We got to go. So we planned it. We went the first year, of course, it was tough hunting. I, I shot that bull, uh, and a fun story on, on the bull I shot. So the la it was the last day. We wake up that morning, the sun's coming up, and, like, I'm just defeated. Like, I'm wore out. We haven't heard anything bugle. We haven't – I think we saw a couple cows. We kind of walked up on them accidentally and, uh, because we don't know what we're doing. We've never done it before, and we're learning as we're going. And it's just me and Dad with 
some bugles that we bugle calls that we barely even know how to use, cow calls that we barely even know how to use, and a pack full of gear. And we're just learning learning for ourselves. And so we the last day we're sitting there, the sun's come up, we're drinking coffee, and we're like, where do you want to go? He mentioned the place, and then we had met a local, and the local said there's usually elk in this area. Uh, so we decided to go to that area, and, and we get there, and I mean, it's sun's up, like, by the time we get a couple miles in, it's going to be midday, and just kind of sit down and relax, but we get hiking in, and we make it about a mile and a half in, and we crest this ridge, and there's a valley below us, and uh, so dad hits his bugle, and we have we have one answer instantly, and I, I, I'm trying to figure out, is it a, really a bull, or is somebody calling to us? Yeah. And I, I turned to him. I said, is that a bull? He said, yeah. I said, all right. He said, so I kind of climbed down the ridge and I get behind a cedar tree and I got a rock ledge to the left side of me, a rock cliff to the left side of me. And the only place this elk can come is, is upwind. He can't, he can't sneak around, wind us or anything. He's going to have to come straight into us. He gets the calling, breaking limbs, making this elk mad. And elk comes running down the creek. You can hear him pawing, pawing in the water, breaking limbs. And all of a sudden, we look up, and he's walking down this hiking trail straight to me. So I draw back on him, and he kind of turns and goes away from me. But as I'm drawn back, I'm behind the cedar tree, and he stops behind the cedar tree. Uh, my bow kind of gives. And so then I turn and look, and he's standing. So I have to draw back again. And I look down, and my arrow's off my wrist. I have to try to get my arrow off my, on oh my wrist my while I'm drawn back. And then I, I put my bottle pin on him, shoot, and I just hear a thump. There's a log behind him. And I'm sitting there like I just shot underneath him. Like I don't, I don't think I hit him. And I turn, I watch him run, and I, the arrow actually went into his chest cavity. So when I shot, he turned to me, and the arrow stuck through his chest cavity. He ran 90 yards, and then I watched it. before he could crash. I was up to my dad, high fiving him, hugging him, everything like you know, just. You go into this place, you have no idea what you're doing, and you're successful. Your an addiction is automatically going to start. Like that's all you're going to oh, do. Oh yeah. And you know, so we the fun part of this story is we go back to camp. So it was nine of us up there. We end up shooting five bulls. We get Dang, to the camp. Man, that's we're, that's we're, crazy good odds. I mean, like I don't hear that kind of success from anybody. Five out of nine people is. So, phenomenal one one of the guys one of the guys that goes with us used to guide in arizona so he's he's really good at calling and then who he hunts with has learned from him so he's good at calling as well and so they killed and then they had uh two others killed and of course i killed mine uh and then really it was five out of six of us hunted we had some some older guys hunt with us and i mean i don't really think they was there to hunt i think they was more of just a vacation to the mountains to drink beer but <laughs> there's plenty of um, those guys out so there. we ended up yeah out of out of the hard hunters we was we was five or six my dad was the only one that didn't kill um but i, I think he was more excited about the fact that i killed so I, I feel like that was a win for him yeah well so we go down we we you know go down you got to take pictures with him and then we leave him we go back to the camp, get in the truck, drive back to the camp, campground, and the guys are sitting there, and they're like, y'all do any good luck? I say, yeah, I shot a five-by-five. Five. I said, uh, oh, that's cool. So I start grabbing packs and stuff, and they look at me like, oh, you're being serious. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I shot one. He's, he's dead. We're going to get him. 
so we go, we hike in and we're quartering him up and, and cleaning him and everything right there on the trail. And we look up and the local high school that was, you know, not far from there, the one of their high school classes was on a nature trail walk. <laughs> and so 15 of these kids and a teacher come walking by us on this hiking trail. And the boys, all the, you know, all the teenage boys stop and talk to us and stuff like that. And the teachers started talking to us and the girls kind of walked on by and went on up the mountain. And it was just the funniest thing of sitting there and looking up and just seeing this field trip come walking by us on this hiking trail as we're cleaning the elk. So, but the next year, the next year we went up there, it was back to tough hunting. It was hot. They didn't bugle. Uh, then the third year, we went up there and my dad actually went caribou hunting in Canada and I had a buddy go with me to Utah and uh we hunted hard actually the very first day we went we we hiked into a normal spot and uh we saw a bull and a few cows um we had a guy one of my dad's best friends comes with us and we talk about not being in shape to go like we made it halfway in and he just he just sat down he's like I don't know if I could do it and Dad looked at him and said, look, we're going to go in and hunt. You can either meet us at the trailhead or you can sit right here and we'll pick you up on the way out. And we went on and hunted. And uh, we ended up seeing a bull and two cows. Uh, still tough hunting. We hunted pretty hard for a few days. And then finally there was, you know, we're in the Ashton National Forest. So we go to the top of the, we, they got this one area that's just like a six mile walk in, but it's probably a 2,700 foot in elevation climb. Um, and we're like, let's do it. So we go in, we get about halfway up this hiking trail and my buddy's like, I, I kept telling my buddy, I like, I smell something like, uh, you haven't been around hogs, but when they root, they stink. And it's just like bulls when they, when they get out and they hit swallows and stuff and they pee on themselves and everything, just the smell of them, you can just, it stinks. And he was like, well, there was fresh moose droppings back there. It might be a moose. I was like, no, no. So we top this hill, we top the ridge, and we hit the crest, and we look out in the field, or we look out there, and we just hear this herd running off. And I saw two bulls running through, and I was like, "Like they're here! Like it's it's go time!" Yeah. We get set up. None of them would bugle back. So we go out in the middle of this this pasture field, and we get set up in a cedar patch in the very middle of it, and my buddy's glassing and I'm just sitting there, you know, just taking a break from the climb. And he's like, there's, there's a bull. So I looked through it and all I saw was a horn. I was like, that's him. Like we're about to call him in. So I get set up and call while two spikes come walking out and they mess around. I mean, we're about three, 400 yards from this, this tree line that they're in and they come walking out towards us. And, you know, they get about halfway out there. Our attention shifts that they got, uh, 300 plus bull on the tree line tearing up every tree in sight mad that there's another bull on this mountain with him like his game on herd bull I know he's a herd bull the way he's acting his cows are behind him like it's it's go time we're about to get him to come in so we get set up on him and it was like I was watching just a hunting show or or, or National Geographic of this bull coming across snotting bugling steam coming out of his mouth when he's bugling his Jeez. horns dropping down like below his back like i'm just like in awe 
third year ever doing it, first elk I've ever had communications with with a bugle. And he's coming at us. I'm like, like this is a dream. <laughs> like, and I'm not there to shoot. I'm I'm there to call for my buddy. My buddy's this this is him. So I got him set up. 80, 90 yards in front of me. I'm back there breaking sticks and stuff. And he's steadily coming across this field. And I don't know if the wind swirled on us, if he just figured something was up. I got over aggressive calling because, you know, I'm, I'm green to it or what. But he stopped at 90 yards, bugles at us, turns, walks to the tree line a couple hundred yards away from us, turns, bugled back at us. And when he bugled that time, there was about, 20, 25 cows come running out of the tree line to him and stop. And they just went on down into the woods. And like watching that, witnessing that, having the communication with the bull, watching these cows, just watching all of it. It's like, I mean, I don't, I don't, yeah, I enjoy whitetail hunting, but something like that. And if we'd have been successful, it's even more, but just seeing that, witnessing that and having that experience is like, I'm full. Like I walk around my house with my bugle calling all day long. Like that's just how much of a hook I had after that instance. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know how you could not so we, get hooked after having an encounter like that. I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of elk now in my life. Whether I'm driving through Colorado in a park or actually hunting, but when you actually get to see elk doing elk behavior in their natural environment and they've got no clue that you're there. Like that's something that would bring me back year after year after year. And then on top of that, to be able to carry a rifle or a bow and potentially bring back a couple hundred pounds of good, clean meat in, in the fall, you can't find me anywhere, but in the outdoors for that reason. Absolutely. And I picked up my first bow you know, 2011, 2012, it was a browning mist. And, you know, it was just, I, I asked for a bow, asked for a bow, asked for a bow. My parents finally bought me a bow for my birthday or something like that. And I shot a doe with it and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. So I ended up selling it and getting a bow tech and I was hunting with it for a little while and, you know, killed a few, killed a couple little bucks with it. And like from then, from probably 2012 to 2000 and 15 me and my dad was bow hunt only like we wouldn't we just didn't have no joy with having a rifle in our hands that's just what we've always want. we we just always want to bow hunt so we shot bows and that's what we hunted with and i've never carried a rifle in the elk woods i've only carried a bow and so not only was we doing something new with the outdoors we was learning how to hunt probably one of the hardest animals to hunt with a bow and get them within 60 yards to put a shot on them. And Man. if you, once you become successful doing that, it's like, uh, I can do anything. What <laughs> yeah, you, the, the you know, what you want me to go hunt, after, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go kill it. Yeah. The boost of confidence you get after taking an elk like that, man, that's, that's unmatched. Uh, as far as going out West and hunting, is that still something you do every year? And, have you been exploring other states or are you sticking with that one? So the, the, actually the end of that hunt, the last day we was there, um, I had one of the guys that had killed a bull already. And I asked him to take my buddy up to where we had shot that bull because I wouldn't experience with calling. 
I knew the bull was probably staying in the area unless he caught wind of us. He might have went somewhere else, but they could get in that area and try to see if my buddy gets shot on him. So in that process, I talked to the guy that got it, and he don't like anybody hunting with him. He don't like people going – like he got a select few he hunts with. He's one of those that – he don't like people to go with him that's new and sit there and try to suggest or act like he doesn't know what he's doing. So I told him, I said, look, I want to learn bring me with you, teach me everything, talk to me about it. I'm not going to ask a single question. I'm not going to make a single suggestion. However you want to hunt, we'll do it. So we go in to a spot on the backside of the mountain where we saw that big bull at, kind of a place that he usually hunts and he's usually had success in. And we get once we get in there, he hits that first call. We have a bull bugle back, talk to us for a little bit. Then we walk around. Um we walk around the mountain, we go up top, we kind of go. So we're actually, you know, midday, you're just relaxing or whatever. And we're sitting there eating and he's talking to us. He pulls his GPS up and he's like, all right, so this is where we're at. This is where we've seen some bedding at historically. So we're going to go that way. In the middle of the conversation, he's like, we're going to head a bull bugle 75 yards from us. And I'm like, he said, we're going to go right there. I'm like, all right. So we set up on this bull, talk to him, talk to him. I mean, he's working towards us. I don't know if the wind swirled or what. He just went mute, and we didn't have any. We didn't. We didn't get a, a look at him. So then we make the big loop all the way back out to where we had first started, and we're up on the ridge looking into the valley that we had first bugled at. And he blows his bugle, and we have four answers. And I'm like, God, like this is like the honey hole. Like, well, he says, well, we're gonna go down the ridge. We'll get set up, and we'll we'll go from there. So. We get down there, we get set up, he bugles, and one of the bulls was bugling exactly where we was just standing on that ridge. Oh, like man. He, he, we must have been like in his wheelhouse that when he blew that bugle, it made him mad he was coming at us. And so this bull works down towards us, and we're sitting in kind of a little small cut over with like little pine cedar trees, and I'm watching these trees shake. And like I notice bulls like coming through there to either whip us or I'm going to get a shot on him. So the only place he could have stepped out was 25 yards. I heard him walk and get to right before that opening. I couldn't see him. Right to that opening, the wind swirled, and he bolted. But right before that, he growled and bugled 25 yards in my face, and I don't know if I could have pulled my bow back. Like, that's how much adrenaline and how much nervousness <laughs> that came across me when that happened. But when he turned and bolted, like, I could see the rocks fly. He was so close. And from then, I'm like, man, this is it. So I, we went back the next year. We didn't have – we had, hadn't had any luck. Uh, I, I did go to a private ranch, West Texas, shoot a shoot a six-by-six six over there with a rifle. But that was – I mean, to me, it wasn't as fun as what I deal with. It was kind of one of the spot and stalk deals. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, we had my – son so the last two years i haven't been able to go we didn't go covid year and then last year my son was born so i didn't make a trip last year but this year we're 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 ready to go we leave out on the tent to head back head back to utah um i've looked at different areas but where we go it's over the counter we know there's elk there we've had success we've seen you know we've seen them we've heard them we know where they're at uh but we have looked at other options we looked Idaho um looked at some places in Colorado to draw for but 
I haven't really dug in to figure out how the draw system works. Yeah. So that's kind of new to me because, you know, South Louisiana, you just go to Walmart, buy a tag, and you go hunting. Yep. So, but but where we go, it's it's OTC. It's 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 nice. It's it's I love it up there. It's it's hard hunting, but if you're success successful, it's it makes it worth it. And you know, it's like anywhere any hunting you do, you're not going to be successful every year, but when you are, it's 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 worth every penny of it. Well, and when you put in that hard work. Uh, the combination of hard work and failure makes the successful moments that much better. Uh, I tell people that all the time. I'm like, man, if you go stand out on your porch and you shoot a giant 200-inch buck every year, that's great. Like, good for you. I don't think there's a person on the planet who can do that. But imagine doing that and then doing it again the next year. It's just not going to feel like you accomplished much because you can do it year after year after year. But when you have those years where you strike out, where you don't get to punch your tag or, you know, you come home with an empty cooler, it makes it that much better once you have a successful encounter, when you can bring home the meat, when you have the story of how it came in, it did it just right. And, and in, in partnership with that, the physical side of it, like when you have to physically work for something, the victory is that much better. I, I I agree, and and you know on my my aspect of it is that five by five I shot that first year. That's a memory I'll never forget with my dad. Yeah. I mean, we both put in the work, we both hunted hard, we we went to the extreme of doing what we had to do to kill one. And I mean, right before we was about to give up on it totally, you know, the luck came in and we ended up getting one on the ground. And and that's something that I can say that me and my dad worked for, and, and you know, I I did it shoulder mounting so it's in my house so when people ask me about him i get to tell that story and he did have a little piece of velvet on the back side of one of his horns uh so that was pretty cool to see that little bit of velvet on his horns and he wasn't a big bull but uh, i mean he, he's a trophy to me just from the from the memories and, and the hard work we've had to put in for him yeah yeah the the memory of it i I feel like that's another thing that gets overlooked when you, when it comes to, you know, mounting an animal or getting a European or keeping the, the horns. Uh, that's something that people who aren't in the hunting world, um, you know, they, they sometimes have a problem with that. It's like, Oh man, you're a trophy hunter. You did this just to hang it on your wall. And it's like, no, it really is about the memory. I go, I've got all of my mounts currently at my buddy Brad's house and we hang out there every Thursday night. All the guys do. I'll be heading over there tonight. And when I go over there and I see those mounts, each time I look at them, it's a reminder of the story. And when new people come to hang out, they're like, oh, tell me about those animals. Or like, who shot that one? Who shot that one? And it's like, I'd much rather put that to use. I'd much rather have something that I can still remember and honor that animal with than letting it just rot outside. Um, but the to have that, like to have your first elk mounted and on display and something that you can be excited about every time you see it, dude, there's, I keep coming back to this. There's nothing like elk hunting. There really isn't. I love, I, I love I, white I, tail I agree hunting. with you. I, yeah. I love white tail hunting, I, I but tell, it's I just, tell people that, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, I, I love white tail hunting. 
I love sitting in the tree stand, but once you actually get out like Western hunting and it could just be Western hunting in general, but the communication side of it with elk, like hearing the bugles, being able to see the big herds, uh, seeing the landscape, you know, just going up and down these mountains and valleys and thick forests and grassy meadows at high elevation. There's, I don't know, man, it's, it's something that I hope every outdoorsman and woman get to do at some point in their life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something that, I, I mean, I love to do it. And actually, uh, the trip we're going this year, my fiance is going to come with us and it's going to be her first time out there. She's not going to, I don't think she's going to hunt much because we're going to bring my son, but it's something that, you know, I talked to her about and, and she wants to go do it and just experience it and be on the mountain and do it. And I mean, she's, she's a avid hunter, just like I am. Um, and that's, that's been great. Like she, she loves to go to us with the camp in Missouri, love to hunt. She actually, I put her on probably the biggest deer I think she's ever seen in person. Uh, last year we couldn't get it done. She had the bow in hand. He come in at 40 yards and some thick for us and just couldn't get a shot on him. And we saw him twice. And I mean, he was, he was probably 150, 155 inches. And it was, it was just, you know, I had been watching this deer. I think he was right around four, four and a half years old. And he was just a great deer. And I, I, I had it patterned perfectly. He just took the wrong turn on out of the two trails. He was supposed to walk down one trail and come to us. And, you know, he went on back behind us and, um, but she's, she's hooked on it just like I am and to bring her out there and my son getting older, you know, once he reaches that age and he can go out there, it's just going to be something I look forward to for years to come, just going out West. Um, my next, my next adventure, I hope to go moose hunting and, and shoot one with my bow. I don't know when that time will come, but that's, that's the next adventure for sure. And I feel like I'm going to have to compete with a ton of other people because as, as I talk to people and is that like your number one bucket list hunt or is that just one of the next things that you want to do? So my number one bucket list hunt would be a moose and I want to shoot him inside 10 yards with a bow. Dude, see, and that's what, that's what I'm talking about, man. Getting up close and personal with moose. That's another level. I, it, it's crazy because, you know, you see an elk and you hear the bugle and you can hear that thing rip from a long way away. And then you see a moose, which is, it dwarfs a, an elk. And you would think they've got this blasting voice or crazy mating call. And then you hear it and it's just very underwhelming. But yeah, I can only imagine if they actually made a call that, that matched their look and then being in the terrain that they're in, just the sheer size of them, the aggression that they have when it comes to mating season, I cannot wait to get out and do an archery moose hunt. That's for sure number one on my bucket list. And it's funny because I talk to so many people who say the, the exact same thing. So I'm like, all right, at least I'm not crazy. Like this is what everybody wants to do. But also I hope, I hope that I pick the year where not everybody cashes in on it because uh even alaska if everybody if everybody decided to go up there um you know i want to go up to alaska and get away and not see other people and float a river and call in moose and have encounters with bears and catch salmon and do all this stuff uh i feel like it would be kind of a bummer or it would take away from the experience if i got up there 
and kept running into other hunters doing the same thing. Yeah, I agree. And I'm a, I'm such a do it yourself person. I, I, I don't want to go and get a guide and spend all the money on a guide. I want to go somewhere that I can go by myself or with my dad or, or with my fiance or somebody and just go up there and experience it with somebody and do it all, all the work yourself. Like I, I I talk to these people that go, you know, I talk to folks that go elk hunting and they use guides and stuff like that. And I just, I don't see any joy in having somebody spotting, you know, know where he's at pretty much take the fun out of actually have to go out and, find these animals and dig down deep and think try to get into their mind on where they would be at where you know you go moose hunting where where do i need to be set up at or where do i need to get to be successful what what kind of work do i need to put in how much do i need to spend on on maps and and you know looking at topography and stuff like that just to find these animals and it's just it's just it's it's something i've always wanted to do it's that I shot my elk. Now it's now it's time to go for something else. And like you were saying, I feel like the moose should have the roar like a stag has. Yeah, like that deep roar that's you know kind of like a bugle, but they have their own significant sound. I feel like that should be a moose sound instead of just uh sounding like an oversized bullfrog. Yeah, yeah, for real. Uh, I agree with you on the, on the guided thing. I definitely want to do it like DIY. Obviously the transportation I'm going to have to rely on somebody for on the elk or on the moose hunt, but I like, I like hunting with other people. I just don't want to go do it with the 10, 10 guys. If it was me and a couple of my close hunting buddies and we go up there and we float the river and, you know, maybe some people get caribou tags or a bear tag or, or a moose tag or whatever and we just go and have the adventure of a lifetime that's that's what i'm all about um the guide thing i i've never used a guide for a hunt like that but i can see when when you draw a tag in a place like arizona right you go to the strip in arizona you finally draw a tag after 20 years and you want to capitalize on it and you go and find a guide like I, I won't discredit people who do that because I do see that these guys who live in the areas and they know the elk and they know where to find the, the certain size bull that you're after. I feel like the encounters that you have are pretty intense and that's awesome. But I will say I've always found it more rewarding, kind of like you doing it on my own. You know, if somebody else does everything and all they do is put me behind the rifle and tell me to pull the trigger, I don't feel like I hunted the animal. I feel like I killed the animal and they hunted it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, and, and, and I'm like you. I understand that people draw these tags and they're it's a once in a lifetime for them. They might not ever draw another tag and, you know, get the guide and go out and hunt these animals. And, and learn about them and stuff. But if, if you do get the, if you do get the chance to go and do a do it yourself hunt, it's just, it's just so much better. It's bring your best friend, bring, bring a couple buddies, like you said, and, and go out there and, and work hard. You might not be successful, but that memory is going to be just as rewarding as if you were to ethically kill an animal. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, coming back, coming back with meat, no matter how you get it is, is always a reward. Like 
I have never been this panicked in my life. I've been eating venison every night. I mean, I typically have venison in my diet very consistently, but I've been eating venison steaks and chops every night as part of this diet that I'm doing. And I'm looking at my freezer and it's kind of winding down. And I'm like, dude, I've got, I still have a little while before deer season. Like, I don't know. I don't want to go buy steaks at the store. That's, that's something that I pride myself in, you know, eating elk and eating deer and eating, you know, turkey and frog and duck and goose and rabbit squirrel. Like I, I enjoy going and getting the meat for myself. And so, uh, this year I'm, I'm going to have to really step on the gas because I need to bring in now that my kids are getting older, now that, you know, I'm eating, I'm eating even more of it than I used to. Like I need to bring in another elk or a couple extra deer this year just to keep up. And I, I, I did end up losing, uh, some meat last year because of a, a freezer issue. The freezer went out and I didn't realize it in time and I lost a lot of meat. And so if it hadn't been for that, I would still have plenty to get me through, but now I'm kind of, I'm kind of grasping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely make it a point that first first Missouri trip I make. I, I usually don't hunt, you know, opening week. That's usually our elk time. We usually go that week around opening day in Missouri. Okay. I usually try to make the first. I try to try to make it my first trip around October up there. Uh, weather's kind of getting down. The deer kind of, you know, they're working. They're not in their home front. They're they're kind of working differently, but. I've, I've been successful with it. I've, I've been excess, successful with them that first week of October. Um, and I check my moon phases a lot too with that, but I, I, I always make, I make it a point that the first doe that walks out when I'm sitting there, if, if it's a mature one, she's, she's coming home, home with me for sure. Yeah. Uh, just to get that security blanket of, of meat in the freezer. And then from there, you know, it's, it's, let's hunt and let's see what we see, watch deer and everything. You know, we've sat on a stand and seen 20 something deer and didn't shoot any of them, just sat there and enjoyed watching them. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's different because usually when you talk to hunter open a day, they want to be in a stand. But for me, it's, I kind of like to wait. I like to wait for the cool weather to come in. Not necessarily because I don't want to go sit in the sand and sweat, but I just like to kind of, study my deer patterns throughout that open a few weeks uh we might make a jump towards late september but usually it's the first week of october i'll make my first run up there a lot of that's work related too but um that's just how how i've always kind of managed my hunting time um but then once once we get closer to to november then it's then it's game on then i'm spending quite some time up there yeah well, and to, to have that security, like you said, with the dough, that first dough, it takes so much pressure off of you when you're not worrying about like, man, I got to get meat in the freezer. I got to get meat in the freezer. And so that's what I love doing that. I love going out early season with my bow and harvesting a dough or two. And then I can really focus on, you know, a target buck that I've been after or a certain, certain size or age structure deer that I want to take. Um, so that's typically my yeah. first go-to is, man, if I see a doe, it's, it's coming home with me. 
Yeah, it's 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 definitely going it's definitely going to hit the uh the the meat pole with the at the camp. So uh, I I and I and I'm I'm just I'm the same way. I, I once I put my I, I I don't put my trail cameras up in Missouri until late July because we got a lot of farm grounds. We lease the land and then they got farmers that lease the land. So we kind of don't go in there and mess with them after turkey season. Yeah. And just kind of let them get all their stuff done, crops planted and everything. And then we usually go up. I'm actually leaving here uh, a week from two weeks, I think, go up there to get my my minerals in the ground, my, my trail cameras out so I can start studying my patterns. And historically, it, it's funny because I, I, I got buddies that run cameras all year long. But historically, my cameras, it's usually the same bucks running the same patterns on our property, um, the ones that we haven't had a chance to take or, or were young and, and we're watching them grow. And so when we took over the place, we took over the place in 2012, I was renting, I was renting a house from, from this old guy, from this old guy right there that owned the property. And my house was on 260 acres. I had two ponds and I was just in this little old house renting from it, but people hunted it. But every time I talked to him, I'm like, can I hunt it? Can I hunt it? Can I hunt it? Finally, he came to me with the guy that leased it, had paid, and he couldn't get t- contact with him. He said, y'all want to hunt, hunt the property? I said, yes, sir. He said, when can you have me paid? I said, hold on a second. I called my dad. I said, hey, he's letting us lease the property. You, you want it? Yeah, how much? Told him how much. He mailed the check out, and I'm like, all right, it's in the mail. <laughs> so then we started hunting. The, pe- the people that hunted it before, they were from the city and they were out there strictly to have meat in the freezer. And so everything that walked onto that property got shot at. And so the first few years of hunting up there, the deer was just the population and the, the pressure on the deer were just, you could just notice that you wouldn't get anything on camera. I mean, we were getting small bucks, you know, younger bucks kind of running their, patterns and stuff but we wouldn't see in the quality deer that most people you would think in central missouri you would think you see yeah and so we we went into a strategy and we go back to what we talked about earlier on uh you know lease rules and stuff like that it was a group of us and we sat and we talked how can we get our population up how can we get these deer to know like to come in and stuff can't plant food plots because there's crop we got to run mineral and that's it and uh so we, we come up with the plan of if he's outside the ears, you know, and you outside the ears, you take him unless you want something bigger, yeah. obviously. But we uh, we ran that strategy probably up until a couple of years ago. And the quality deer we have on camera now, I I'm, I'm went from seeing maybe getting a 130 on camera so now we're seeing these 140s and 150s, these four and a half to six and a half. I had a, if I had an aging, I would say he was between six and a half and eight years old last year on camera. Jeez. And like you could, his horns, he was, he was a seven point. He was on my hit list and I had him patterned and I just could never get up there at the right time for him. And it was just a chess. It was probably the best chess match I've ever played in my life with a deer. The deer won, but it was so much fun studying this deer and studying where he's at. And I had two stands set up in perfect locations for wind purposes. 
I reset up a couple locations. Ended up taking it ended up taking a three and a half four year old uh, eight point with my muzzle loader, but just studying this deer and watching him work. And he's an old deer, and I to be honest with you, I doubt he made it because he was just you could tell he was he was up in that age that he was it was time for him to either get killed hunting or it was time for him to just go lay somewhere and maybe yeah. not make it through the winter. But it, it's just that's kind of why we don't press so hard in, in September really is, is just because we have our system on how it works and how we attract these deer. And if we don't put the pressure on them early, then when it comes time for them to get into that, that rutting area, the pressure is not on them and it, they push that area kind of in our, on our land, on our farms. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's awesome when you can, you can get into a property like that and you can set up a plan and execute that plan, have everybody on board. And then you will, I mean, you will start seeing those deer that are six to eight years old and it's just a different level. I mean, those deer are so rare. There's not a ton of people who while out hunting have seen a seven and a half or an eight and a half year old whitetail. They're just not very common. And so when you can have those encounters, even if you don't capitalize, it's just cool. It's fun to play that cat and mouse game like you were talking about. Um, but I know we're coming up on time here. I do want to give you an opportunity before we hop off to share with my listeners where they can find you, where they can follow along, um, and where they can connect. Yeah, so I, you actually talked to one of my one of my buddies, Chad Hopkins, a few months ago. Um, yeah. I don't know if you remember having a podcast with him. And so we started a page. It's more than hunting outdoors. Um, we started in 2019. It's uh, on Instagram, MTH underscore outdoors. Uh, we post just a lot of stuff that we do, do and, and what we kill throughout the years. It's not a, we don't use it a lot, but it's kind of a, I'm kind of going towards a goal uh kind of with work and stuff i've kind of downplayed it a little bit i haven't been able to do it but that's the that's the instagram you can find me at um that's where all my outdoor stuff is uh and you also might get to see a few funny selfies and stuff with my son and a deer or you know me and a deer stuff like that when we kill um uh, we do have facebook more than hunting outdoors uh just you can find us on there um, we haven't really got into the other platforms of social media with TikTok or anything like that yet. Uh, I'm still trying to get out, not be so awkward in front of a camera so I can post stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely an acquired skill. Um, I never wanted to be one to, I, I hated listening to myself talk. I hated seeing myself on camera and uh, it, it definitely takes some getting used to, but Travis, I really do appreciate you hopping on. I'm excited to follow along this year and see uh, how your elk hunt goes, how your Missouri hunts go, um, and all that you stay up with in the outdoors. So thanks again, man. Hey, no problem. I really appreciate it. I've, I've enjoyed watching your journey, you know, rise up through what you've done with your podcast and, and your social media as well. Um, and maybe sometime in the future, we can get you down here and catch one of them red snapper off the uh, coast of Louisiana. Oh man, you just, you just say when I've got, I will clear my schedule for that. 
You just you just tell me when you want to come down here, and I'll make it happen. All right, we will we'll get that set up, man. Well, thanks, and uh, good luck this season. Hey, I appreciate it, and good luck to you as well. And and we'll talk soon. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. I had a ton of fun talking with Travis, getting his take on what hound hunting for deer was like. Um, and I'm definitely taking him up on his offer to chase after some red snapper. That sounds like a blast. I mean, that's something I've been dreaming about doing for quite a while, actually. And I'm sure Travis right now, his mind isn't even on that. It's probably all about getting out west this fall, chasing after elk in the mountains. And man, it's just crazy to me that it, we're this close. I mean, a month and a half from now, not even like... 40 days, 45 days, I'll be out in Utah with my good friend chasing after some deer. And from there, it seems like everything is going to be popping up like each season, one after the next, after the next, all through the fall and winter. And I could not be any more excited. So we're going to be getting in the RV here soon, like middle of August and hitting the road. We're stopping up in Milwaukee. So two events on the 20th and the 27th. And uh, you're going to have to go look up the OKS Hunter as well as Half Rack and get the details on the events that they're putting on because I'm going to be up there for both and I hope to see you guys there. Also, another update. I may have talked about this on a previous podcast, but my buddies are doing this big, like, returning 40 birthday party trip up to Alaska next year. And so we are in the beginning stages of planning out the details of that trip, where we're going to go, what we're going to hunt. And I just feel lucky to be on the, on the group because I am not turning 40. Thank God. Uh, one of them is turning 40 this year. The other two are turning 40 next year. And then they've got a friend coming with, and I don't know where he lands and all that. Maybe he's turning 40 as well. But because I love traveling and hunting and the outdoors, and I've been to Alaska a couple times now, they've invited me along. And so 2023, big trip to Alaska. Now we just have to figure out what we're fishing for, what we're hunting for, and where we're going. So hopefully you guys are gearing up for this fall and everything that's coming down the line. And until next time, get out there and chase a new adventure. <laughs>